I advocate for sharing uh, as broadly and as widely as possible. Um, when you do that, you get the benefit of their review, um, their response, and more importantly, their, their questions that are gonna challenge you. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15 year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Naren Ariel into the conversation. As CEO of Amplify Publishing Group, Naren advises industry experts and thought leaders on the opportunities and challenges that exist in the ever-evolving world of publishing. He launched a company with a single title in 2003 and guided it to what it is today, one of the fastest growing and most respected hybrid publishing companies in the world. Prior to entering the world of books, Naren worked as a lawyer advising tech companies in the DC area and is now a frequent speaker on all things publishing and author branding, which is how we met. Many playmakers own a copy of my book, The Power of Playing Offense. Naren and Team Amplify are the publishing geniuses behind it all. Maybe there's a book inside of you. To find out, let's welcome Naren Ariel into the Playmakers podcast. Naren, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? We're great, Paul. Great to be on. Absolutely, man. I'm fired up. I feel like this has been years in the making. So for all Playmakers listening in, you may or may not have read this, mm, some would say awesome and amazing book called The Power of Playing Offense. And if so, that was brought to you by Amplify Publishing. And Naren is the proud CEO of Amplify Publishing. So that is how we met. And since it has become... Uh, just an amazing friendship, and there's many more things to come in the future. So, Naren, how'd I do for an intro? Is that okay? Fantastic, Paul. Uh, the Power <laughs> of Playing Offense uh, was uh, quite a journey, and it's a fantastic book. We're really proud of our work there. Absolutely. And would all give a massive shout out. And Naren and I always, uh, you know, he's, he always gives me some, uh, some elbows on this one. He says that I took the designer to the grinder. So if the power of playing offense looks like a work of art, Paul Epstein has nothing to do with that. All the credit and shout out to the wonderful uh, team at Amplify. And so with that, Naren, we are going to get into some more about books and publishing and thought leadership. And I really want to loop in all playmakers because I think there's playmakers out there that might have a message inside of them. They might have a story that they want to share with the world. They want to have they have that big idea, but maybe they don't know where to start. So we'll certainly get to that point. But for all playmakers, please be thinking if that is you today's conversation should deliver tremendous value. But Naren, where did your, talk to us about early stage life journey, just where you were born, all that good stuff. And eventually we'll get into the early professional days. Sure. So I was born in Nepal and I'm going to guess that I'm the first playmaker guest to have <laughs> uh, been born in Nepal. Is that a fair assumption? It's a fair assumption. Okay, great. So uh, born in Nepal, my family immigrated to the States when I was uh, young, four years old. And for the most part, I grew up in the West, in Colorado, uh, for my formative years. And uh, then I moved to Virginia um, during high school. I ended up at Virginia Tech. I'm a proud Hokie. Go Hokies. Um, and then I went back to Colorado for law school. And that was 1.0 of my career as a lawyer. Yes, it is true. I was a lawyer. A lawyer. Huh. All right. So a lawyer, and I happen to be married to one. And so I have a lot of inside jokes about lawyers and they don't come from me. My wife tells me all the dirty secrets of being an attorney and all this. So <laughs> let me ask you this. All right. Yep. New book, Better Decisions Faster, which you know well, we have this thing called green, yellow, and red lights. A green light is when your head and heart are on board. A yellow is when only one of the two is on board. A red is when neither is on board. So clearly I'm not interviewing you today as a lawyer. <laughs> that is a former chapter. So for you, at one point, was it a green and did it change or was it a yellow, red? But like, talk to me about that chapter. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So it was never actually, looking back, it was never actually a full green. Um, it did start with a yellow. And, uh, you know, going into the profession, first of all, being a lawyer is a fantastic profession. Um, it, it provides a good baseline and background for just about anything you might do afterwards. And, you know, there's plenty of lawyers that aren't practicing law. So um, so I went into it uh, with a yellow because I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And it was a way to get back into school, sort of delay adulthood um, while picking <laughs> up some really valuable skills. So it was always a yellow and it was a good way to. Um, you know, set myself down a career that uh, provided a good living for myself and my family. Um, but I wasn't passionate about it. And, and so that's why I was never a green. And then as I went on practicing law for about seven years, that yellow uh, eventually turned into a red. And, you know, it was just um, fortuitous for me because that's when the whole world of books started uh, happening for me. So we can talk more about that uh, as we go, but clearly never a green for me. Yeah. Okay. So let's hang out here for a bit because there's probably a lot of playmakers out there that might currently be in a career state that they would describe as yellow, where either their head or their heart is not on board. I'm guessing from the way you describe the yellow, it was your head that was on board, but your heart was never in it. Is that, is that a fair assumption? That is totally fair. Head on board, heart couldn't get there. Got it. So if I'm listening in and what if my head is on board for what I'm currently doing and I know it's been years, my heart is just not into it. What advice or perspective would you have for somebody that's currently in that career state of mind? Well, I think there's a lot of people in that career state of mind. So uh, this is a, isn't a unique problem to me. Um, and so my advice would be, look, life is short. Um, you have to do something that you're passionate about. It's that simple. And I, you know, change can occur um, today, in a week, in a year or three years. Right. And so if you know that your heart isn't in something, you should be taking steps to extract yourself from that situation and move yourself into the direction that um, that is uh, that is, you know, has you pursuing your real passion. Yeah. And two things to share on that, Naren, and let me know how this lands with you, but a couple pieces. So there's a good yellow and a bad yellow. One of the yellows, I believe it, it's worth staying in the fight. And then there's another that, and it frankly, the second one is the one that you described, which is how often is our heart really changing? Like your mind can change overnight. There could be one conversation that totally flips the way you think about the world and your life and your career. So head change is more possible. It's not easy, but it's more possible. How often is our heart changing? Like day to day, whether it's a bad relationship with a company or a person, like you think things are going to be different on Tuesday than Monday and different on Wednesday than... So it's kind of one of those, and I'm just going to be very direct here of like, we're kind of lying to ourselves if we think that our heart is going to change overnight. So it's just that authenticity test of when are we going to step into that. So that, that's one piece. But then the opposite for a playmaker listening in, I run into folks that their heart is on board, but maybe their head is... Uh, having some challenges. And one example, I just uh, spoke to uh, a young lady. She's working in the nonprofit space. She loves it. She is so mission driven. She is so impact focused, but she could barely pay the rent, you know? And so the head is just presenting some financial stress, but her heart loves what she does. And so what we were talking about in a coaching combo was just how to stay in that fight. Because she tackled the more important of the two. It's hard to find what your heart is on board for. So I just wanted to share that perspective out with playmakers. And if you have a reaction to that, Naren, on either side, would love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, there's no real right answer that's um, applicable across the board. And there's so many variables and so many uh, considerations. And, and so, sure, it's easy to say drop everything today and follow your heart there are some practical considerations. And, you know, uh, this, this person you're talking about sounds, sounds like the, uh, uh, the, the, the perfect test case for that uh, theory. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so leaning in here. So that's, uh, you, you mentioned a point in life and point in professional career where books and publishing started to potentially emerge. But before we get into the professional side of publishing, is there an origin story of maybe where you fell in love with books? Like some folks, 
love the read. They love a good book. Like, and it could be a professional context or a personal context, but is there an origin story for you on where that love came from? Yeah. So, um, I love sharing the story of how I got into the world of, of books. And so I was a lawyer. I worked at venture funded technology companies, uh, in Northern Virginia. I was with three different ones, had stock options. And, uh, this was late 99, 90s, early 2000s. And all three, um, met a fiery demise. Um, such was the time as the, the dot-com bubble, the first one. And, and so I was on the bench trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And, uh, my daughter, who was three at the time, wanted a children's book about my alma mater's mascot. Uh, I, mentioned I went to Virginia Tech. And so on a drive home from a football game, uh, we drafted this little children's book, uh, me and my wife, called Hello, Hokey Bird. Hokey Bird is the mascot, the, the proud turkey mascot of the Virginia Tech uh, Hokies. And so my, you know, with simple illustrations, my daughter loved the book. She loved hearing about uh the simple story of the the mascot going around campus, stopping at uh, four or five landmarks on his way to the big game where he, of course, cheers the team to victory. And so what we found was she loved it. And we, you know, I, I had some time on my hands. We decided we we're going to get a license from the university and we're going to prepare this book. And that's that's how we got our start. Hello, Hookie Bird was title number one uh, that we published. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. So then that's an amazing peek behind the curtain on the family side. How does that transform into a business? Um, one day, and you know this feeling, um, Paul, I got I got 5,000 books, showed up in my driveway. Very happy day, right? I mean, it was a beautiful book. Yeah. Everything and then quickly it turned into a very scary day because I didn't know anything about selling books, marketing books, or anything along those lines. So, but what we had is um, we had a connection to the target market. And so we went and got the book into all the right bookstores and fan shops. Um, and we found a untapped niche market opportunity at the intersection of children's books and licensed sports products. And so within four months, one fall, we sold 5,000 children's books. And that got me thinking, hey, you know, my heart isn't in this lawyer thing. Uh, this seems to be a successful venture that we've just been through. Why not take this simple idea and do the same thing for other universities? And so that's what we did. In a year's time, we had 45 other children's books on the market. You know, uh, schools like uh, Michigan, like, you know, you might have heard. Of oh, go blue, go blue. You don't even need to continue with the list. It's like Michigan. Wait, please. USC. I was going to say USC. Hello, Tommy Trojan. <laughs> I have that book. Do you have that book? Oh, my God. Hello, Tommy Trojan? Yeah, hello, Tommy That's Trojan. That's you? That's us. Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. So, so we did the same thing for other universities, um, really, uh, you know, taking what we learned in our first book and applying it to different markets because the formula was the same, content that appeals to parents and grandparents wanting to share their love for their alma mater. And so we knew that worked. Um, at our school. And so we did the same thing at 45 other schools in a year's time. And then we got a license for Major League Baseball, started work with NFL teams. And that's, um, you know, version 1.0 of our company. At the time, it was Mascot Books. We've now rebranded and renamed our company to Amplify Publishing Group. But that's how we got our start. I never knew. And so is that the reason for the name Mascot because of the tie to the sports industry? I did that's not it. know that. That's it. Oh, Wow. Okay. It's all and clicking so, and now. And now it's all clicking. I thought I knew you, but apparently not. Okay. So, but to be clear, so when it went from one, uh, you were still an attorney. Like that's what I gathered also from what you just said. So at some point in the growth of between one and 45, at some point, that is where the leap of faith, if you will, from, okay, I'm no longer a practicing attorney into that space. Did it happen in that uh, sprint? Yeah, what happened is we met success with our initial title. And so that would have been the fall of 2003, 2003. And then after that first season, I was, you know, counting the number of books we sold and, you know, it was close to 5,000. I thought, well, what if we did the same thing at 100 colleges? And so obviously that was a good business Very plan. Very cool. Um, and so at that point, we went all in, you know, got a mortgage on the house, um, maxed out the credit cards. And just went all in chasing our green light. Mm. 
Entrepreneurial journey. I love it, man. So you mentioned NFL earlier, and just because of my background, NFL, NBA on the business side, there's a lot of sports and sports business folks, frankly, that are in our playmaker community. So uh, talk to us about not only the work that you might have done in the professional sports world, but also uh, fast forward. I do want to hear the earliest points of not only mascot and growing into Amplify, but maybe some of the folks that you met along the way that are in the sports world and how you've had just the honor and pleasure of um, being able to partner with them on very special projects and books and other things. So just would love to get a sense of the stickiness to the sports industry. So given our origin story, we just have always had a tie to the world of sports. And one of the things that we did initially is we got um, celebrity authors to to write our books for a specific market. So for example, we did a New York Yankees book, Um, a guy named Yogi Berra, uh, authored a book called Let's Go Yankees. Uh, in Boston, um, we had a gentleman named uh, Jerry Remy, uh, who, Remdog, if uh, you're a Boston guy, <laughs> um, who authored our four or five uh, Wally the Green Monster books. In Virginia Tech, we eventually worked with Frank Beamer. In Alabama, we worked with a um, uh, famous quarterback now, he's, he's escaping me, Kenny Stabler. Um, we try to partner with some legends in the local market. Um, and so then we just really got to got to know a lot of folks in the world of sports. And and as we continued, we were just always uh, seeing some really fantastic sports titles. And that that continues to this day. Very cool. So now zooming out today, what is known as Amplify Publishing, you you still like Paul Epstein would be one small example of somebody that has a sports business background uh, that that you've partnered with. But you're much more. And you've also got sports. You've also got a sports athletic background, Paul. Oh yes, at five nine and a buck eighty, I can kick one hell of a field goal. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, look, you do a lot more than partner with folks in the sports world. I, a ton in the business space, ton in the political space, and and we can continue. But talk to us a bit about uh, how Mascot eventually uh, grew into Amplify Publishing. And then on the back end, um, would love to bring our listeners in to better understand the world of publishing. Because, you know, I, I had no freaking clue before I got in the journey. I just assumed that every publisher was a big dog in New York. And I now know that that is not the case. It is actually a small, while big in brand and stature, small uh, a number of of outfits there. So just talk to us about how Mascot became Amplify. And then also then just break it down for as kind of the publishing state of the union, if you will. Okay, great. So um, as we continued, uh, people started coming to us for help with their projects, initially in the world of children's books, because that's where we had our had our expertise. Um, and then gradually, we started publishing other other genres as well. Um, you know, we do fiction, we do cookbooks, we do uh, obviously a lot of business and thought leadership books right now. Um, we do political titles. And so we were really one of the pioneers um, in the hybrid publishing space. Um, which uh, just real quick here for those most some know some don't but the hybrid space is the uh, publishing arena between self-publishing on one hand and traditional publishing on the other and so we were one of the first uh, companies to um, to play in that space and define that market Um, and so as as time went on we really took uh got serious about genre diversification and we started doing the things that I enjoy most. And, you know, as a business person, I really enjoy business books. I enjoy thought leadership books. And so that became a real emphasis of ours maybe six or seven years ago uh, to the point now where I would say our Amplify imprint, um, which houses the thought leadership books and your two fantastic books, um, is probably about 75 percent of the work we do. And we work with a lot of keynote speakers such as yourself, um, a lot of CXOs, a lot of people who are just at the top of their game, whatever their game may be. Mm, mm, love it. Love it. So thought leadership, talk to us about if I'm a playmaker and let me connect it to a brand that most folks are very familiar with, TED. So a TED Talk, the whole mission of TED is what is your big idea worth sharing with the world or your big idea to spread to the world. So everybody kind of wraps their mind around that. Now I can say, okay, if that's the spoken word, let's take it to the written word. And 
they don't need to be mutually exclusive. And in many ways, I think there's folks, I'm one of many folks in the thought leadership space that would say, no, actually, if you can double down on it and that speech that you have inside of you now turns into a potential book, where I'm trying to take this is, where do I start? You know, if I'm listening to this and I say, I've always thought about writing a book, but I wouldn't even know where to start. I feel like there's a big idea that I'm passionate about and that's brewing inside of me. But again, I just don't know where to start. How would you advise that playmaker if that's where they're at? Uh, Great question. So first of all, you have to, well, you don't have to, but uh, you probably should um, start with what you know. What, What do you talk about? Why do people care about what you say? Paul, in your case, you know, you're an expert in leadership and in teams and corporate culture. Um, And so that's where you start, because that is where people are going to be interested in in what you have to say. So um, at the highest level, um, that's my answer. But then, you know, tactically, what do you do? Um, You got you got a book and you want to take that first step, which is always the hardest step. And, you know, I, I use this thing called a one pager. It's it's as simple as it sounds. Um, you should get that idea of a book out of your brain, out of your head, onto a single piece of paper or, you know, uh, onto a, a Word document. And that one pager, what it contains simply are the following. A proposed title, a proposed subtitle, five or six sentences about what the book is. What is the big idea? Um, and then beyond that, uh, you should have a few sentences about your target market. It's important to know who's going to care. And then finally, if you have a book or two that what we call comps, you should list that as well. And so, you know, this simple one pager gets you started on the journey to create your content. Um, What happens is you can take this one pager and give it to somebody, you know, like myself or somebody you trust in your inner in your inner circle and say, hey, I'm going to write a book. Here's what I'm thinking. And so what will happen is that person will be able to look at your ideas and offer suggestions, ask you questions to help you to take it from a one pager to a three page outline to a 12 page outline to a document, a, a document that can help you write a manuscript. And, and whether you need a writing coach or a ghostwriter, but anyway, that one step starting the one pager and working with somebody that can help you develop it further is has is, is been proven to work time and time again. All right, Playmakers, it's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes, and on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. And just to validate what you just said, Naren, <laughs> it's funny how years later, I feel like uh, I've picked up some seasoning in the space of, of thought leadership and becoming an author. But I specifically remember the very first phone call that you and I ever had. And I think I'd already been talking to a couple of folks on your team. And then they said, Hey, let's bring the big dog in and (laughs) let's bring him in. And you're going to meet Naren. And I said, game on. And I'm going to clean up the language a little bit. You weren't too bad. It was like, it it was like a, it was PG 13 meets rated R. It was. Yeah. But you basically challenged me because it took me probably five to 10 minutes to explain what would eventually become the power playing offense. So I was not at a one pager. I probably threw up my 10 pager to you. And so you jumped in and you said, hey, what's the big idea? And then where I need to clean up the languages. And you said, and why should anybody give up? Yeah. And and you literally said, said, what's your idea? And why should anybody care? Okay, let's go rated G. That's fine. But no, it's very consistent. Um, And I do want to recap the one pager for everybody, because yeah, you were very uh, succinct and simple about it. But I also just want to make sure for folks that are taking notes here. So Naren's perspective is if you were to put together a one pager, 
have a proposed both title and subtitle, about five to six sentences. We could call that the summary or an abstract, whatever you want to call it, right? It's a summary. Can I say one thing, and, and, I say one yeah, thing sure. about this the title and subtitle? So um, you know this. We've 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 talked title and subtitle uh, so much over exhaustively, over, exhaustively, right? Um, uh, titles can uh, the subtitle is where I, I'm really focused. You got to That's the contract you make with a potential reader, where you tell the reader what the book is and the value it's going to deliver. The title need not be so clear; it can be a little catchy, something to just grab your attention. Those are the general rules. Sometimes people uh, sort of stray from the rules, but generally speaking, that's what I say. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, look, the subtitle, it follows what everybody's favorite radio station is, which is, I learned this early in sales training. They said, W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me? The subtitle has to answer to the potential reader, what's in it for me? Because if they're not convinced that their life or business or career or whatever is going to level up because they took the hours to invest in the read, then you don't have a chance. You, you lost the game before kickoff. <laughs> if you, the title, subtitle have to do it. And I know you're bigger on subtitle, something that a mutual friend of ours, uh, Rory Vaden, um, who we both know in different contexts, but one uh, perspective he gave me about the title is it has to, there's a series of tests, but the one that really resonated with me the most is he calls it the I want test. So fill in the blank. I want blank. And so my new book, Better Decisions Faster, I want to make better decisions faster. Boom, done. It passes the test. It doesn't mean you're going to buy. It just gets me to the next phase of consideration to somebody that's surfing around on Amazon or that came across my book in another way. Do I want whatever the title is? And then to your point, that subtitle is the contract with the reader about what's in it for you. Absolutely. And by the way, you got to go through the process to land on the right subtitle, right title and subtitle for your project. And Paul, you went through the process. Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, <laughs> folks, if you ever want to uh, potentially and look, it's Amplify, I think the, the batting percentage here. Correct me if I'm wrong. You accept about 15 percent, one, five, 15 percent of the right. proposals. OK, so, folks, if you were to take a swing <laughs> with Amplify, not saying it's a guarantee, clearly 15 percent uh, success rate. But if you ever do and if you ever talk to this guy named Naren, you can do what I did and change the subtitle about 20 times he will love you over <laughs> and over he will <laughs> i think i was a tough client man. we still get along i know it's all a bear hug and adult okay. beverages get us through it <laughs> okay so getting back to the one pager uh title subtitle a summary which is about five to six sentences who your target market is and Naren said comps, the comparables. If, if there were two or three comparables that you would say, okay, in my genre, in my niche, who are the books that I would model this after? Um, you know, those, those are just good ones to study. Let me ask you a question, Aaron, and then we'll come back into unpacking more of what's in the one pager because I, I think it's really fascinating. All right, there's two avatars I'm thinking of that could be listening in. One has a day job, so they're, they're thriving. You said a CXO, or it could just be, hey, a manager, a director, a vice president, somebody that is a career climber and they are doing well and they want to write a book versus there's others that are like me that go all in to the world of thought leadership. And so if you were talking to Paul at the 49ers and I still had my day job, that would have been the first avatar. But now the Paul of today fits in the mold of the second one. So if I'm listening in, do you have any perspective? I'm sure there's pros and cons and we can always get into the exceptions. But as a general rule of thumb, just best practices, if you currently are in that day job, you're in that career climbing, you don't have a thought of becoming an entrepreneur, you're just going, but there's a message inside of you versus if you were all in on thought leadership, would you approach the process differently in, in those two avatars? Yeah, I think in the second approach, we'll, we'll say uh, the current Paul approach, um, you know, your content is is everything. It's your livelihood. Right. And so it's so important. It's so important to have a book uh, as a part of your overall platform. 
Um, you know, I'm not saying the book should be the only part of your platform because that's that's not why we do a book. Um, I'd say in your situation, it's it's uh, it's critical and it lends a lot of credibility. Um, whereas the first situation, the old Paul, who was at the 49ers, uh, he still had some time. Um, it wasn't as critical at, in terms of where you were in your thought leadership um, journey. Right. So now let's say that the old Paul would want to do it. Somebody listening in that um, I, I'm not going to name a name, but let's say there's a there's an executive with AT&T that I was introduced to uh, through Amplify. And the, the plan is to, you know, ride the wave and stay at AT&T for a period of time here till the end of a career. So yeah, why so, write so a book? Let me just have- yeah, let me just offer a, a clarification. In your initial example, you said somebody who was in, in middle management. Um, I, I'd say the rules are a little different if you're in the CXO level because then, okay. because you've you know you've theoretically arrived to a certain level of success and have certain following and uh, certain uh, credentials that um, you know, more people are going to want to know about about your expertise and your pathway and your ascension. Um, to where you are today. So slightly different rules in example one. Um, one there's one in one A in terms of where exactly you are in the corporate or entrepreneurial um, where you are presently. Yeah, so happy you put that line in the sand. So just to be clear with everybody listening in, if you're a CXO at, at a Fortune 500 and you've achieved a certain level of success and the trophies and the accolades and all that good stuff that comes with it, your cred is going to be higher. And so to Naren's point, there might be more folks that are tuning in to see what that piece of thought leadership is that you share. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't write a book as a mid-level manager or whatever the case is, even as a frontline contributor. It just means there might have to be a unique spin on it. And maybe here's a question I didn't plan on asking you, Naren, but now it's it, it feels right. So do you have to write a book that is tied to what you do? Or like if I was a manager, but I'm not looking to, I'm a sales manager. I don't want to write a sales book. I don't want to write a management book. I want to write a book that's about something different. You mentioned a kid's book, like earlier, like I'm a parent of three, like, does it have to be tied to your profession or, or are there some examples that fall, uh, in a different space? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be tied, uh, to your profession, but, um, for potential readers, uh, they're going to be most interested in you because of what you've done professionally. Unless, of course, you've got this incredible personal story, which by definition isn't going to be tied to your profession. It's going to be about something that, you know, is interesting that happened to you over here as opposed to your work. Mm. All right. Well said. Yeah. Couldn't have couldn't have laid it out any simpler or better. All right. So getting back to the the one pager. So title, subtitle, we, we shared some practices there. As far as summary and really communicating the big idea, what's most important to get across there? Yeah, I think the key thing here is to be able to frame your book and big idea in a way that's differentiated from if you're in leadership, the hundreds of leadership books that get written on an annual basis, right? You got to have a unique take. And that unique take is typically um, based on your personal experiences, and uh, a, a, a position that is just different than what's uh, been out there uh, to date. Now, some people will say, hey, everything's been written under the sun, which, um, you know, is true and not true. But it's also uh, if you're coming out with a book, you want to be able to differentiate what you're talking about uh, with your own experiences. Here's a rule of thumb that a couple different coaches and mentors have actually impressed upon me that could be valuable for everyone listening in as far as original thought leadership. And uh, actually, there was one gentleman that coaches TED speakers uh, specifically, and I remember what he said. He said, you should follow the 80-20 rule, which is 80, when you share your big idea, 80% of the market should say, yeah, I generally accept that. I generally buy that. It's not so radical that only 10% are going to say, okay, this person's sober. No, it's 80% are going to say, got it. But it's got to be 20% net new, 20% different. You're not just recycling or regurgitating what was already out there. So think about it. In, and I'm not suggesting this 80-20 rule is uh, the, the standard. I'm just giving a potential framework of thinking about it. Is your idea generally going to be accepted to say, yeah, I, I can buy that, 
but yet it's still new enough, different enough that it's going to be advancing the thought leadership that existed before you put this big idea out into the world. So I don't know if you have any response to that, Naren, but it's just something that I was uh, taught by a, by a coach. Yeah. So I haven't thought of it in terms of uh, percentages, 80 and 20. That sounds reasonable to me. Um, but understand uh, somebody's going to be investing in you and your words and your book. There's got to be something in it for them. Right. And it can't just be rehashing um, or rephrasing. Uh, there's just got to be more if you want an effective book launch in a book. Last two pieces of the one pager. So target market and comps, um, uh, you know, target market, I, I struggled a little bit on this one. I think one, one book as an example, first book, business leadership, got it like that. That one was a little bit more streamlined book two, better decisions, faster. People ask me, so what type of decisions are you helping people make? And the reality is it was pretty wide and, and it was challenging for me to really hone in on how could I succinctly describe my primary avatar? And maybe that's a good way of thinking about it is I now have clarity on a primary avatar for my second book, a secondary avatar and a tertiary, like a third and beyond avatar. But I wrote the book with one person in mind and that person has an avatar that's in my primary bucket. I just think it's going to benefit other folks but clearly I had to write it in a way where it was targeted. Um, so I, I don't know if you have any thought. I think the, the listeners would want to hear who your primary avatar is. Yeah. So the way that I boiled it down is it's a high stakes decision maker. So I'll, I'll give a little context to it. The average adult in the U.S. makes 35,000 decisions in a day. That shocked me when I originally found this research and it's been validated through multiple sources. Now, we all know that the majority of 35,000 are going to be in the mundane, common. Do I turn left in the driveway? Should I brush my teeth? The, the answer is yes, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, they fall in this bucket. But then there's these forks in the road, these high stakes decisions, these decisions that have consequence. And that seemed to be the avatar that is making strategic decisions. They're making in a business setting personnel decisions. So strategy A or B, do I hire or fire? Do I invest or not? Like those types of decisions can have significant consequences and we don't have a proven framework or system or process. And that's what led to the ideation that was the head hard hands equation. But I really had to focus on yeah, sure. Could the book help you make the common mundane decision? It could. But more importantly, is it going to de-stress you from those paralyzing forks in the road? And I'm trying to solve the problem of paralysis and the worst decision of indecision. That's the problem that I'm trying to tackle. Excellent. Excellent. So you and I have had these conversations about your book specifically, right? Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of personal applications to your formula. Right. And so whether you stay in this relationship, um, you move to another city. Right. These are all personal uh, applications to a fantastic framework. But we also know that there are a lot of business applications. Right. And so, you know, and you and I talked about this and, and you, you're we're talking about how we got to how you got to um, your decision uh, in terms of uh, who the primary and secondary avatars are. But these are these are uh, issues that uh, a lot of authors struggle with. Um, you know, is it is it a self-helpy thing or is it a clear business thing? I've had this discussion many, many times. Um, and so, you know, we sort of landed, you sort of landed. We had many discussions about it, um, but we settled on these avatars. And that's a great way to look at it, primary and secondary. Yeah. And I think part of the factor for me personally, and maybe this will resonate with folks listening in, is you've got to think about what your core a form of impact is. So for me, being a speaker is first and foremost. Well, 90% of my speeches are to business and corporate audiences or big associations. And so naturally my message gears toward that. But here's the beauty, Naren, and here's what I want to share with everybody is, and I will say this in a speech almost every time. Today, what we talk about is going to genuinely, drastically improve your business. However, it can even more significantly improve your life. And so I make that one, two punch of make no mistake. This is a business conversation, but I think that by the time that we give a bear hug at the end of today, you're going to realize that this can be implemented as a parent, 
as a spouse, in the community, in your recreation, in your hobbies, with your friends, because a lot of what I talk about is very people-centered. And so if it's going to help you with your team, if it's going to help you with your fellow C-suite members, it could probably help you with your partner as well. You know, like that's really the humanity that I try to, that's my unique spin. I'm not saying that's what everybody should do. It just is authentic for me. That's so well said. And, um, you know, you also have to be mindful of who's, who's hiring you, right? Exactly. Who's hiring you to deliver these speeches? It's, it's, uh, it's corporations. And so you can't get, um, overly moved by that fact, but it's a consideration. So home stretch here, a couple other questions. Got, um, I got my one pager dialed in. If I'm a playmaker title, subtitle summary, target market, and some comps, some comparables, should I go at this alone? Should I, uh, seek outside support? Um, and if so, who should I be seeking support from? You touched on this lightly earlier, but would just love to know more from a, Hey, am I locking myself in the basement until I finish my one pager and that's where it lives? Or am I socializing this? Am I really extending it out? Um, I was talking to somebody earlier today and, uh, he's also in the, in the book industry. And we talked about how some authors are afraid to share their ideas because they're worried that somebody else is going to steal them. And so every time I hear that, I just chuckle. Interesting. I just chuckle because um, I advocate for sharing uh, as broadly and as widely as possible. Because when you do that, and particularly with people that you respect and who are in, in your tribe or people that have experience, um, when you do that, you get the benefit of their review, um, their response, and more importantly, their, their questions that are going to challenge you. Right. And so you take that one page or share with somebody, you know, Paul, I would share it with you because you've been through this this process many, many times. Um, and I think you've learned a few. Well, many times isn't twice now. And you've learned a few things. So I'd share it with somebody like you and say, hey, Paul, what do you think? And so I'm going to guess that you're going to read it and you're going to say, OK, I understand this. This makes sense. But I'm not really sure what you're talking about here. And so in that process, um, a lot can be fleshed out, a lot of back and forth like that to the point where. Uh, that one pager again can turn into a 15 page outline. Don't go it alone is, is the final answer. Don't go it alone. Yeah, no, well said, well said and, and diversify also who you're balancing it off of, you know? And I, I also think this, that it, this doesn't just mean share it with the closest five relationships that you have. I, I would say even more so focus on, a, a, who they are, B, what they've done, but also somebody that genuinely is going to care about the best outcome for you, right? And, and so they've had that, they have this unique balance of they've got that professional enough cred to be able to give some concrete feedback that's, that's substantive, but they also, they care about you. And so you know that there's no different agenda that's being put out there um, by the other person. So that would be something to consider. And also another point is um, anybody that says, hey, this is great. I love it. Good job, Paul. And that's it. Don't want to ask them for uh, feedback uh, the next time because, um, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult to deliver hard news and difficult news. And, you know, tell Paul that, hey, you got a real problem with this one pager. And so I, I value getting that sort of feedback. Oh, I'll, I'll level that up one. How about this? If you're seriously going to go through the process of putting together this one pager, a prerequisite in your ask of somebody giving you feedback, they have to deliver a minimum of one piece of constructive feedback. Like let them know you want some bad news because guess what? It's not going to be perfect. I promise you that. And so therefore there will be something to have some radical candor with you about. Give them the free reins, give them the permission, encourage it. They don't need to beat you up. They can give you the positive and then say, and here's two things that I wasn't a fan of. Here's why. And here's some potential solutions on how you might want to go forward. Just food for thought. That's it. So true. So true. That's it. And then one other thing that I'd say is um, at a certain point, you know, before I just said that you should get as much feedback as possible, but as you go through the process, um, you're going to want to refine the number, just the sheer number of uh, voices that you're actually listening to and and making just because it can it can get to be too much um, as you get further down the down the line in the process. 
Totally. And using the, the head hard hands piece, maybe this will resonate out there. Your, the whole mission for why you want to do the book is going to be a lot in your heart. Okay. As you're getting a lot of feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, it's going to impact your head a lot. And so that whole analogy of too many cooks in the kitchen, just make sure whether they're giving you good perspective, positive advice, or they're giving you constructive feedback, just make sure that you're not changing that original thing so much that your heart is like, if it doesn't end up as a green light, why do it? You don't write books in the yellow. You certainly don't go through the years of the blood, sweat, and tears for a red. So that would be my message. It's just like, that's cool. Feedback is great. I think no feedback is a mistake, but understand this. I personally have overflexed too much, not for a book, but just for many other things, especially in business. And then it ends up being inauthentic to me because I just changed it entirely for the market. And I'm like, I don't even believe in this project anymore. And I think a lot of us have been there. Yeah, uh, not much Not much more to say about that. You're spot on. <laughs> Biggest mistake that a first-time author makes? Um, oh, boy. So let's just sort of uh, keep this applicable to thought leaders and content generators. Um, so, you know, do the simple things that, not, uh, that aren't always that simple. You know, get a good editor. Um, get somebody that knows about cover design. Um, those are the two things that jump, jump off, uh, in terms of mistakes that first time authors make is what you're doing is, you know, you're undermining your own credibility, right? Everyone's heard of this notion of a book that looks self-published and what, what they mean by that is the, the cover is, is not professionally done or isn't, uh, uh, of a certain caliber. Um, and then, you know, if a book is riddled with, uh, mistakes and typos that also, undercuts what you're trying to do as a thought leader. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard you talk about on other uh, conversations and podcasts, Aaron, about this. Just real quick, simplest way of defining for our audience a difference between self-publishing and, and hybrid publishing. Of course, big publishing, there's like the big four nowadays, I believe, which are the big houses in New York. Most first-time authors that are not celebrities are not going to be in the big space. So usually, usually, not, not 100%, but most are going to fall in the self-publishing realm or the hybrid publishing realm. Can you quickly break that down for us? Yeah. So first of all, I'll say this. I'm a big fan of self-publishing. There are more and more authors that are successful self-publishing than ever before. Um, Amazon is, you know, came on the scene and, and just really opened up the world of books. Um, so self-publishing is when the author does all of those things that we, that we just talked about, you know, uh, rely on the author for the editing, rely on the author for graphic design, rely on the author for printing, warehousing, distribution, marketing. It is, you are the general contractor of your book. And so, uh, you know, as long as you, you, uh, surround yourself with experts in all of these areas, self-publishing can work. Um, but the problem is problem becomes when you're super busy and you're running a company or you're running your own practice. Um, sometimes it's desirable to work with a book general contractor, uh, in the form of a, of a hybrid publishing company like Amplify. Yeah, no doubt. And so I, I think we've gone deep enough in this <laughs> the subject matter area for today. I just want to say for all playmakers, one, you know where to find me. If there's any more specific questions, if you're considering taking uh, part in this journey, if there's a big idea brewing inside of you, and maybe now thanks to Aaron, you know where to start, but you still want to know maybe what the second and third steps could look like. Just hit me up. Also, Naren, where can folks find you, follow you? Like, What's the best way to stay in touch and engage with you as we go forward? Sure. So our, our, our website is uh, AmplifyPublishingGroup.com. Uh, you can shoot me an email, probably the best way. It's uh, Naren, N-A-R-E-N, at AmplifyPublishingGroup.com. Or you can always um, get in touch with my good friend, Paul Epstein. Oh, there we go. All right. This is the grand finale here. So no pressure. You ready? You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Speed okay, round. man. <laughs> well, this is a, it's a speed round of one, but, but we are going to do this right. Um, you've been so gracious with giving advice for a lot of folks in an area that may be kind of a deeper burn and passion. So let's just zoom out. This isn't specific to writing a book. The, this isn't specific to the big idea, but just through all the life lessons and insights that you've learned, is there a closing piece of 
advice that either you would want to share or is there a number one piece of advice that you've received and now you just want to pay it forward? Wow. Uh, that is a big, broad question. And so in terms, yeah, of, it is. in terms of uh, sharing, I would say, um, again, it goes and I'll, I'll keep it sort of limited to the world of books. Um, it goes to this idea of putting, spending a lot of time doing it the right way of putting a book together. Um, while you're putting a book together, also keep an eye on how the book is going to be marketed because some of the most successful projects I've seen, of course, you got to have really good content, but you also have to be mindful of who's going to care. We talked about target market and how to most effectively market a book. And so we just haven't spent too much time talking about book book marketing, but it's, it's an area that we can spend another hour talking about. And I would just encourage folks to, um, really keep an eye on the book marketing while the book is being put together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that that alone and more, of course, could warrant another conversation as we go forward on the podcast. And I know I said last question, but Naren, I'm just going to pop this one in for you. Aside from the power of playing offense, of course. Okay. So you don't even need to give that answer because we just, it's a default, but maybe a, I'm not going to ask you for your favorite book. Cause then I know you're going to give me the whole can like, Oh, it's like choosing your favorite kid. I get it. I get it. How about this? What is a recent book that you really enjoyed reading and why? Okay, great. So I'm going to limit it to one of our books. I'm going to give you two. Okay, okay, so uh, we just did a book uh, with a guy named Ben Lytle, uh, who you may know. Um, He's a futurist, and he did a book called The Potentialist, and it just launched uh, last week. And we debuted his book at number six on the Wall Street Journal. So I'm very excited about that. Um, And it's a great look into the future. And he's got some wonderful theories about uh, technology and what it means for human potential. Um, I just really geek out when it comes to stuff like that. That's cool. So there's one for you, right? It's a new one. Cool. Well, good. Uh, Well, definitely we will pick that up. And just in general, Nairn, from the bottom of our hearts, on behalf of all playmakers, thank you, brother. You've been just a treasure trove of wisdom. Uh, Half the stuff you said is true. So even better, right? This is like you've set the bar. This is fantastic. Uh, But in all sincerity, man, just been an honor to get to know you. I hope playmakers now feel connected with you, uh, feel comfortable reaching out to you directly. Or like I said, all playmakers, just holler at me if uh, if we could support in you being a mission-driven messenger yourself. With that, thank you so much for being on Playmakers, Nairn. Hey, thank you, Paul. This was fantastic. Really appreciate you having me on. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, Take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310-564-7857. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.